Hi everyone, Mike Vinoy, Vice President of Marketing at Assure. And uh, today we're gonna talk about seasonal employment. So here we are, end of May, uh, you know, students are getting out of school. Uh, you know, it's, uh, some are taking finals this week, maybe finishing up finals uh, in, in this next couple of weeks. Uh, and, and it has a, a fundamental impact on the labor market because we have this concept of uh, seasonal employment. And I think we're gonna talk about uh, you know, what is seasonal employment from a legal perspective? Um, uh, in, and in fact, is there such a thing? Uh, but, it, but it really presents new challenges to employers, I'd say especially small businesses and in, in, in growing companies um, who take advantage of this new influx into the labor market without really maybe understanding some of the legal ramifications and some of the uh, protected uh, nature of whether it's based on age or hours worked and schedules. Um, if your normal business runs on, you know, X number of employees that are kind of 40 hours a week uh, and, and they're all, uh, you know, uh, out of high school, they're, you know, 18 and, and above, uh, they're things that you just might not think about in the day to day. So to help me unpack this topic today, uh, regular guest to the show, Brian Schenker. Uh, uh, Brian comes from, uh, uh, Jackson Lewis, uh, where uh, Brian has extensive experience uh, representing clients in uh, uh, wage and hour and, uh, and really anything uh, uh, anything labor disputes uh, uh, representing uh, against uh, maybe employees, former employees who sue or uh, 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 actions taken by fe uh, government, uh, federal, state agencies against the employer uh, and can really help us uh, uh, navigate these, what is probably more complex waters than many of us would think. So welcome, Brian. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me today. And yeah, certainly a very uh, timely uh, topic as we're headed into the uh, summer season. Uh, I think, you know, seasonal employment, you know, it might change by industry, but I think we general ha generally have, you know, two, two time periods a year when uh, seasonal employment becomes uh, an issue for employers and right now during the summer months and then potentially right during the winter you know, holiday season. So uh, right. yeah, happy to jump into this today. Yeah. So so let's maybe just start out with a definition. Right. So, you know, we talk on the on this show, we talk about, you know, exempt versus non-exempt, uh, W-2 versus 1099, different legal classifications of employees. Uh, is there such a thing as a legal classification as a seasonal worker? So not necessarily, uh, you know, in, in various uh, laws, especially maybe, you know, our, our local or state laws uh, governing certain you know, time off or sick leave, they might reference seasonal employment. Uh, but when we're talking about it, I, I think what we're really talking about is, you know, the, the temporary engagement of workers for, you know, anywhere from, say, you know, three or, or six months, though I think it's, you know, usually on the, on the shorter end there. Uh, and so, you know, these these employees are often hired to uh, manage, you know, increased workloads, you know, for whatever reason. And, you know, these employees, you know, these seasonal workers, they might be working, you know, full time, you know, 40 plus hours a week during that period. Or they could just be, you know, simply part time, uh, you know, working you know, 20 or so hours. So it really ranges, I think, you know, what these employees are doing, how they're assisting companies. But you know the main point is that they're temporary, that they're brought in for uh, well, and right now we're talking about you know the summer period. 
Uh, and you know, I think that brings you know many challenges. What we'll talk about today, you know, many of these the laws are the same for you know year-round employees uh, and seasonal workers. Uh, yeah. But when we're talking about the seasonal workers, I think there are lots of in intricacies that uh, we see applying to them that you know don't always come up uh, with our you know full-time year-round uh, workers. Uh, so it's important to be aware of those. Yeah, you know, and I'll just kind of jump into it from a legal perspective, and you know. <clears throat> don't encroach in, in in your world. You're going to educate us here, but I think about you know the Fair Labor Standards Act. Um, do I, I think do I have it right, Brian? I think it's 1928, right? I mean, this is this has been around nearly a hundred years, right? Um, and it, it 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 established the first you know overtime rules, uh, child labor protection laws, so you couldn't you couldn't have a sweatshop filled with kids, right? Um, uh, and so I think so many times we think, you know, FLSA, even if you're, even if a small businesses and employers uh, are aware of it, it just feels like this old thing that you just don't realize, well, hey, wait a minute, school's out, I'm hiring a high school kid, maybe this is a 17 year old, am I even aware of what the Fair Labor Standards Act requires of me or, or does not allow me to do uh, as an employer and make requests of, of these employees? So. Could, can you kind of take us through the high level here? Sure, sure. So obviously the, the FLSA, the Fair Labor Standards Act, that's what uh, you know governs at the federal level, uh, you know, minimum wage and, and overtime. And uh, especially nowadays uh, with you know the very active plaintiffs bar and the state and federal uh, labor departments, uh, you know, unpaid wages, you know, paying people compliantly is you know, at the forefront of, of what we're looking at. Uh, yeah. yeah, I can tell you from from my experience with uh, employers, they often look at seasonal workers as, uh, while it's not classified like this uh, under law, they look at it as more of an informal type of employment relationship. So, uh, you know, I've had audits where, you know, it comes out that, you know, while a company is keeping track of time and uh, you know, pay records for all their other employees, their year-round employees, they, they just have decided not to do that, you know, for their, uh, for their seasonal workers, either not tracking their time or you know, simply deciding to pay them on some other basis that's not necessarily permitted by law. And I, I think that really goes to the, the mindset of many employers thinking that these seasonal workers are not subject to the same laws. Uh, and, and that's simply not the case, right? So when we're talking about the FLSA, uh, you know, that, that's a very important law to be aware of. Uh, you know, one of the main things that it requires is, you know, the, the federal minimum wage. Again, many states are, are above that. Uh, so you need to know what your jurisdiction uh, requires. Uh, but overtime, uh, you know, many seasonal workers are working overtime because they're specifically brought in during a busy season and you know hours may be long. And you know, one one thing I often see is uh, companies trying to, you know, contract around the FLSA, right? Uh, where the employer will say, you know, I have an agreement or a policy or maybe even the offer letter stating, you know, that the employee agrees to, you know, work for five hundred dollars an hour. Uh, not an hour, that would be great, uh, a week, and, uh, and and that, you know, that covers all overtime work. Uh, 
you know, and the law does not allow that. The FLSA is not something that uh, an employee can agree to give up any of their rights under it. So, uh, you know, employers need to understand that there's a, still a formal employment relationship with these uh, seasonal workers. So, you know, again, yeah. when we're talking, so, you know, overtime, you know, need to be aware over 40 hours, they're getting time and a half their regular rate. Uh, and, you know, we'll talk a little bit, you know, there are some exemptions that can apply, but typically, and, you know, this is just a very general statement, the, the seasonal help that companies are bringing in are typically not the, you know, higher level managers and, uh, you know, exempt type of personnel. Uh, they're typically non-exempt, you know, meaning they should be paid hourly. And, you know, so companies need to understand that, keep the same documentation uh, that, that they would otherwise. Uh, and if there is an exemption, uh, you know, certainly remember the federal and any state counterpart requirements that, that people meet certain duties, they're paid a certain salary. Uh, so really, you know, the same concepts that a, a company would look at in terms of how to classify and how to pay their uh, you know regular workers uh, that type of planning has to go into the onboarding process and you know uh, of the seasonal workers so so it, it, the way I think the way I think about small business owners yeah you know, I mean so many times you know like I, I, I might pay my my babysitter on my on Venmo right on my on my phone I'm thinking okay this is the 17 year old kid who watches our kids. Uh, and you know what, she's gonna come help us out for a little bit during the summer. Um, and I'm already paying her on Venmo on my phone here. Well, we'll just do X number of dollars per week uh, or per day. And I'll just pair that same way. But not that it is even legal or appropriate uh, with the babysitter. I mean, maybe you can take us through the minimum hour requirements, but if you're bringing someone on as a seasonal worker, even though there's not a legal classification of seasonal, um, if they're an employee, they're an employee, right? So uh, overtime, number of hours worked, uh, minimum wage, uh, taxes, paying that they have to have ta their taxes deducted. You have to have the employer report to the taxes. You have to declare this on your quarterly 941. Can you? Without without trying to make everybody an FLSA expert, can you kind of take us through the core blocks that employers must think about? Because I don't want to stop at just saying, hey, you have to treat me exactly the same as all your other employees, because I think people just don't necessarily think about what those elements are. Can, right. can you just kind of take us through the, the, the biggies at least? Yeah, and I, I think maybe the biggest one which you were you pointing toward is the maintenance of records uh, that, you know, for whatever reason, you know, employ like you said, employers might think, oh, I, I can pay this person, you know, in cash, or I'll, I'll just, you know, Venmo them money, or you know, it, it's something other than what they would normally do, and that, that's simply not the case. Uh, you know, I, for instance, in in wage and hour audits, uh, you know, by the DOL, you know, especially the federal DOL, when when they conducted an audit, a wage and hour audit, you know, they're looking at your regular employees they're, they're looking for a whole lot of things but they're also looking at maybe seasonal workers whether they're you know minors as we'll discuss in a little bit uh the things that are applicable to them uh but you know i've had 
circumstances where a client has great records, uh, you know, they've maintained time records, you know, clock in, clock out for employees uh, and payroll. But then we get to the subset of seasonal workers and we have no records. And, you know, that that can be disastrous uh, in, in an audit or a lawsuit, uh, because, you know, as I always love to say, if it's not documented, it didn't happen. Uh, so if you have these these workers who, you know, seasonal workers who are you know putting in their time working, you know, 40, 50 hours a week, you know, they may be entitled to overtime. And if you're not tracking their hours, you know, that, that's that's something big. So I, I think. Maintaining records is a, a huge thing. Uh, you know, another one is uh, wage notices, and you know this isn't necessarily required under the FLSA, but many state counterparts uh, require you know some type of notice at the outset of employment uh, that provides some information as to how the person's being paid, you know, the rate of pay, overtime rate, uh, you know date that you know day of the week they'll be paid you know these are you know the same onboarding documents that should be used for you know seasonal workers and you know even though we're you know you might think they're a little you know there's a less formal relationship you need to have these things because there can be penalties uh, under the law for not having you know these types of records um yeah. so you know and again you know classifying workers uh, is always important, right? If there are going to be any exemptions uh, applied to workers where you're saying they're not entitled to overtime, you know, that means we need a job description, right? There should, just as a company should have job descriptions for its, uh, you know, its, its regular workers, there should be a job description for these, uh, these seasonal workers so that if a, an exemption is challenged, you know, we have a job description that outlines what the duties are and they're you know, the real duties, not just something we put on paper. And they, you know, it falls under an FLSA exemption, like you know, the executive or professional exemptions. Uh, so I, I think all those are really important. And yeah, certainly uh, a number of other topics we'll discuss today, I think, you know, fall within uh, this FLSA wage and hour context, uh, just because there's so many you know details here with, with seasonal workers uh, that can really throw off an employer and you know result in potential liability. And and if you're bringing on a lot of seasonal workers, you know that that can add up. Yeah. So I guess maybe just close on this chapter here before we we move on and start talking about some of the nuances. Uh, our guidance to employers is and this might just sound stupid obvious and be a bit blunt yet you, you don't get to treat seasonal employees differently than regular employees right you still have to classify them exempt or non-exempt you still have to follow the fair labor standards act uh you still have to pay overtime you still have to meet minimum wage requirements you still have to pay taxes the most the, the, the biggest one that gets uh, uh especially small employers in, in trouble you still have to pay the taxes you still have to uh, do I-9s and, and all the documentations of you, that you would for any other employee. So uh, I, I think that's kind of our baseline starting point. Is that fair to say, Brian? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that you brought up the I-9. I think that's another one of those things that when employers are thinking, oh, this is a little less formal than, than normal, that they might forego that. But you know, remember, you know, if you get 
an I-9 audit, you know, all employees, seasonal or full-time, are, are going to be part of that. And you'll, you'll get dinged and penalized uh, if there's a subgroup that, that you're simply not, not applying, uh, you know, the, the I-9 process. To. That's right. That's right. That's right. Okay, so let's talk about some specific nuances. Um, you know, obviously there's a there's a, a, a correlation, and that doesn't apply to all businesses. But it, when I think summer and I think seasonal work, uh, the the topic of interns uh, come up. So, uh, what are the what are the legal obligations of an employer saying? Oh, I, you know, oh, I don't have to have any documentation. This that's just an intern. Um, right. Get more specific for us for what's required of an employer. Yeah, and and again, just as we were discussing, right? This is another one of those intricacies that has wage and hour implications uh, when we're talking about whether someone, you know, an intern should be paid or, or unpaid. And right in the last five, ten years, this topic has gotten a whole lot of attention uh, under both, you know, state and federal law. Uh, you know. Back in 2010, the U.S. Department of Labor uh, issued uh, a very, uh, I'll say, unworkable uh, six-factor uh, test. And over the next several years, the, the federal courts uh, really struggled with that test. And many of the uh, uh, Circuit Court of Appeals uh, in the next several years started essentially drafting their own tests uh, for whether an intern could be unpaid. Uh, and, you know, uh, looking back at the FLSA, right, it's difficult because, <laughs> interestingly enough, the FLSA does not actually define who is an employee. And really here, the, the question is whether that intern is an employee, thus demanding, you know, the minimum wage and overtime. So, uh, right, the DOL and courts uh, grappled with this for a while. And, you know, finally, uh, within the last couple of years, in, in 2018, uh, the USDOL uh, finally listened to the federal courts and employ and basically issued a, a new test for uh, whether an intern could be unpaid, uh, and, and we call this the primary beneficiary test. Uh, no longer six factors; there are now seven factors. So, yeah, but again, you know, I'll, I'll get into it a bit, but it's really you know looking at all the circumstances. And, you know, we're looking at whether the intern is the primary beneficiary of this relationship or the employer is. If the employer is the primary beneficiary, then this intern is likely an employee and they need to be paid according to all the laws. So we're talking about minimum wage, overtime, everything else. Uh, but if the intern is the primary beneficiary of the relationship, then the classification as an unpaid intern is likely uh, allowable and you know they can get their whether it's school credit uh, but you know not necessarily getting paid uh, and so you know this this test is you know flexible you know no factor is determinative uh, and yeah you know, I, I won't go through all the factors but I, I think a couple uh, of the uh, the major ones are, you know, whether there's an understanding that this will be uh, paid or unpaid, right? That that should be absolutely communicated at the outset. Um, but another thing is that, you know, this, this intern should not be displacing a worker, uh, right? An unpaid intern is not 
uh, you know, filling a need of the company where you're not going to be hiring a worker, you're going to be having this unpaid intern fulfilling that role for the summer, right? That that becomes you know very problematic. So you can't um, you can't lay off your workforce and go hire a bunch of free interns <laughs> to not have any labor costs for the summer, right? Yeah, I, I'd say find an attorney uh, immediately to defend a future lawsuit if you if you were to do that. You know, it may may work very well for the short term, but uh, <laughs> once a plaintiff's attorney finds out about that one, you're you're in trouble. Yeah. Um, and you know, and one of the other factors is that you know the experience should be. Uh, you know, similar to that of the educational environment. So, you know, it, you know, a company that's, uh, you know, employing in unpaid interns, you know, this should be a thought out, well-planned program. You know, even right. if you're a small employer, right, this should involve, you know, shadowing, it should involve feedback. Uh, you know, these unpaid interns should be, you know, sitting in on meetings, right? They're not just running and getting coffee. Uh, they're actually involved, and even if they're not doing the work, that you know you're exposing them to the work. You know, almost to the point where, you know, they might might be taking a little time away from the company and certain managers from doing their jobs because you know they're helping and you know the interns you know learn about uh, this this area of work. Um, you know, so really, I, I guess you know a couple tips. If I could, you know, bring it down to that for for interns would be, you know, have an agreement or some sort of acknowledgement outlining the the arrangement. Uh, and again, it's, this is really if you're having an unpaid intern. If you're having a paid internship, again, that that's essentially an employee, and you're going to pay them as you know as, as your others. But for unpaid interns, right, we want to have a written acknowledgement outlining the relationship. Uh, you know, we want to ensure that they don't have a promise of employment at the end of the internship. Uh, that's actually one of the factors, uh, whether they're promised a job, because uh, you can imagine companies can get away with certain things and classifying some type of trainee as an unpaid sure. intern uh, when right. they're really just trying someone out for a job. Uh, that, right. That's really right. right not what this is about. Um, and, you know, what I would suggest is, you know, designate a mentor. Uh, there should be a mentor, you know, for each intern. There should be weekly meetings, provide feedback both ways. You know, the intern should be giving feedback and you should be giving the intern feedback. Uh, this should really be a learning experience. Uh, you should ensure they're shadowing, uh, you know, certain people within the company and uh, just generally make sure that there's a benefit of this to the intern. Uh, if if the company's doing that, then you know you, you should be relatively safe with an unpaid internship. Uh, but again, I, I should note that as always, you know, look to your state laws as well. Uh, again, you know, this is the federal law, and I can tell you that many states, uh, whether they explicitly state it or not, they do follow this uh, this primary beneficiary test of the USDOL. Uh, but you know, there are a few you know states. Uh, you know that that you know have their own uh, you know tests. I think uh, New Jersey, for instance, is one that has a slightly different test. So uh, you know, again, you know, federal, uh, you know, the federal DOL, right? They always set 
you know, the floor as to what we're looking at. And then, you know, states can add even more stringent requirements. So I, you know, I think it's every week we, we, we add this caveat that uh, <laughs> we generally cite federal law in this weekly discussion we have with this show because uh, it's impossible to, uh, you know, keep up with it real time or even do justice to all of the state and increasingly local municipality versions of all these federal laws, right? So, uh, yeah. uh, I, I, again, I think our guidance here is uh, the, uh, the new federal test for internship has to do with who's the primary beneficiary. If this is, if you're gonna, if you intend on not paying this intern, then you better really have your act together and have good documentation that proves it and and just because it's the right thing to do if you're not going to pay someone that they, they they need to be getting a true education out of this process and they're the primary beneficiary the secondary beneficiary you are getting some some free labor out of it but they're the primary beneficiary if 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 you're seeing unpaid internships as a way to skirt paying taxes and labor uh you are on very thin ice uh and you should probably think this is just a matter of time in especially in today's more litigious climate um the uh, it, it, I, and i think today's young worker coming up is probably more aware and self-aware of their protections than maybe any generation uh that you know clearly we guide against that it, it, anything else you want to add before we start talking about uh not just internships but uh youth workers that is such a big part of the summer employment Sure. And real quickly, just to pick up uh, on the one word you said, which was protections. And so, you know, it, it, the folk, our focus here on unpaid interns is really on the wage and hour context. But, uh, you know, there are also all these, you know, state and local, you know, anti-discrimination, anti-sexual harassment laws. And many of them, if not most of them, apply equally to uh, interns as they do to employees. Uh, and so, you know, when you bring on interns, you know, even if it's an unpaid intern, there's certain policies, certain documentation you want to provide, right? You, you want to provide an, you know, an anti-harassment policy. Uh, you want to make sure that they know uh, who to complain to if they're, you know, being, you know, harassed or, you know, feel they're being discriminated against. Uh, you know, because many states are providing interns, you know, those same rights as, you know, regular you know, employees. Uh, so, you know, that's something to take notice of that, you know, interns can be victims of harassment. They can also harass or discriminate against others, right? You, you bring in, uh, you know, it's just, you know, you think about a lot of, you know, potentially young college age kids coming into your workforce uh working together you want to make sure they're not you know harassing each other right that they understand uh how to operate in a work environment because for many of these you know kids will call them you know it, it might be their first time or one of their first times in this professional uh environment and so uh, right. I, I think you know the onboarding for the interns explaining the culture what's expected and again providing any you know, for instance, here in New York, we have, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, we have some sexual harassment notices, you know, those are things that you can still provide interns to make sure that, you know, they're not becoming a liability uh, to the company. Yeah, Mary Simmons was my guest uh, on a recent show, we were, we were talking about how to prevent 
help prevent sexual harassment. Um, you know, and, and uh, part of the employer's job is not just to deal with it when it happens, but to create an environment of protection. Uh, and that's not just for employees, that's for anybody who comes in the building. So if you got a problem with the UPS delivery person uh, making your front desk uh, uh, office staff uncomfortable, it's your job to protect against that. So it's not just employees, it's contractors, it's anybody else who comes in the building, and certainly uh, uh, interns. So, all right, anything else on interns before we move to youth workers? Yeah, I, I think that covers it. Of course, each of these uh, topics could be, uh, you know, a full hour, if not more. But uh, yeah, I, I think that kind of that, that covers it. Certainly. Yeah. Okay. So, so what are some of the legal protections that that employers need to understand uh, around age? Where are the cutoffs? Uh, I think this is one of the most common areas where employers kind of slip up unwittingly. Yeah. Yes, yeah, certainly. So again, you know, seasonal workers, especially when we're talking about the summer season, we're we're talking about a lot of people under, you know, minors under 18 entering the workforce, uh, whether, you know, they're graduating high school and have some time before college or they're just, you know, high schoolers uh, who are off and uh, for the summer. And so once again, we're, we're looking back uh, to the FLSA for some guidance here. Uh, and there are certain restrictions for all, all sorts of things regarding minors, uh, whether it's you know hours of work or types of occupations uh, they can work in, uh, and it all depends on their age. Uh, and so when we're to, I, we'll start first about the type of uh, occupations th these you know minors can work in, and so. Uh, you know, mainly what we're looking at, the restrictions are really geared towards putting these minors in safe working conditions and, you know, not having them work in uh, areas or with machinery uh, that will be, you know, dangerous to them. Uh, and, you know, what the law does, the FLSA does, is it really separates minors into two categories. We have the, you know, 14 and 15 year olds, and then we have the 16 and 17 year olds. Uh, and then once they reach 18, you know, treated just like uh, any other adult employee. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, and again, I, I mentioned this, you know, before that, you know, DOL audits uh, will get into these types of seasonal uh, workers. I can tell you specifically that the US DOL in every wage and hour audit I've ever had with them, they include a, a child labor audit. Right, they're looking for any minors that are employed uh, by that company, and you know, if they find minors, they're looking at you know what what the occupation they're doing, what hours they're doing. So you know, this is you know at the forefront of what the DOL is looking at. Right, they want to make sure uh, that you know minors, because of you know their um, you know the potential to you know for abuse of the law that you know they want to make sure that that companies are complying uh so say more about the equipment so uh i'm sure there's some legal definitions though that i have to assume the lines get blurred uh obviously you're not you can't put a 14 15 year old running some big forge right you know molten molten steel blown everywhere a dangerous job clearly um but a cash register is also a machine so what machines 
or what, 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 maybe, maybe not asking specifically on machines. What, what, what other criteria uh, uh, that, that, that determine whether this is in fact a dangerous job? Right. So the FLSA, they, they, the good thing is they give a lot of examples of what type of jobs they, they deem are dangerous. I think the term they use are is, uh, quote unquote, particularly hazardous. Uh, and again, that, that leaves a lot of room for, uh, you know, for figuring they it leave out. A particularly large amount of wiggle room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you know there, there are certain you know industries there are certain types of equipment that let's say you know 16 and 17 year olds I mean because when we're talking about the 16 and 17 year olds that's really what the the restrictions are about so you know we're talking about you know number one they shouldn't be driving motor vehicles as part of their job right that that's that's a dangerous you know via, uh, machine um, when we're talking about you know the food industry you know they shouldn't be handling you know meat processors uh right like you know looking at the deli you know th those can those you know machines can be dangerous um you know baking machines many baking machines uh are, are things that you know 16 and 17 year olds and obviously 14 15 year olds are, are not permitted to work on uh and then you know, wood cutting machines uh most types of electric saws uh, are not permissible. Uh, and then, you know, even outside of machines, if we're talking about roofing or excavation or demolition, you know, those are all types of uh, occupations that uh, miners should not really be involved in. Um, so again, you know, there, there are some exceptions, especially in the food industry, if we're talking about something that's, you know, not not really industrial sized equipment, but maybe a, a plug-in mixer or a plug-in, uh, you know, thing like that, where it's something that you might typically find in a household kitchen as opposed to, you know, an industrial kitchen. Uh, and so I, I would tell employers, number one, you know, you can refer to the FLSA. There are a lot of examples there as to, you know, what is and is not permissible. And if you don't find your particular uh, situation, you know, re reach out to someone because uh, that's one where you, you really, both for legal purposes, liability purposes, and and just for general, you know, safety purposes, you know, you, you don't want to be putting minors in situations where they're likely to get injured, right? Uh, that's that's really what this is all about. Um, Ron, this is one of those things that I, that I suspect, you know, no one ever intentionally puts their would it put their minor uh, employee in harm's way? But I'm just thinking like old school employers like my dad. He would have, you know, I grew up on a farm. He would have, he would have thrown me in what would be today considered very dangerous situations that he certainly wouldn't have thought so. So, can you give maybe an example or two of an area where uh, an employer really didn't think that they were putting their 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 employee in a dangerous situation, but the court saw otherwise? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think the, the problems oftentimes come with those younger, you know, 14 and 15 year olds. Uh, and I've seen I, I've seen this one before, um, you know, where having, you know, minors even working on a ladder, right? 14 and 15 year olds should not even be on a ladder, you know, scaffolding, uh, things like that. You know, they, they shouldn't be working with, you know, weed whackers or trimmers. So I, I've seen situations with um, you know, kids in, you know, more uh, construction type or landscaping uh, situations where, 
uh, again, not that they got injured, but it went a bit beyond, you know, what they should have been doing, right? You know, they could be doing landscaping, you know, digging with a shovel and, you know, uh, you know, hauling, uh, um, you know, so, some amount of, of uh, stuff in a wheelbarrow maybe, but you, know, you, you put them up on a ladder or you give them, you know, a weed whacker, you know, those, those things, again, while the employer, like, like your father, you know, uh, you know, I mean, my father too would have me do that around the house. But when you're not, you know, again, one of the things uh, that I'm always telling clients is uh, is that you know your your employees are not really your family, right? You you create and foster an environment where you're all friendly, you know, where it feels like a family, but it's not family. So. You know, right. you, you can't just put these people in situating these minors in situations that you'd be fine putting your kids in. You know, there are these restrictions, um, you know, but again, like you said, cashier, you know, being a cashier, uh, you know, that's fine. Uh, you know, bagging and carrying stuff. That's fine for these uh, these types of, you know, 14, 15 year olds, obviously office and clerical work, you know, there is an exception, obviously office machines are fine. You know, we're, we're not going to restrict, uh, you know, a 15 year old from, you know, scanning and copying. That's a big machine, but it, you know, at least as far as I've seen, you know, not causing, uh, you know, uh, very, very, uh, much harm. Uh, right. should, we, should we just say this, that our guidance here would be, um, Knowing that there is kind of definitionally a bunch of gray area here, um, just use our best judgment and not put uh, 14 and 15 year olds, can't work under 14, 14 and 15 year olds on the more dangerous jobs and use common sense. Is, uh, a, a, a court is probably going to look at what reasonableness you did as an employer to, to protect that employee. Is that is that just a fair, simple way to look at it? Yeah, exactly. I, I think you're right. It all starts with, with common sense and that just that that general concept that you're going to treat minors differently than you would treat adults. Uh, and right. so if you come into it with that mindset, uh, that should get you pretty far in determining, you know, what really should or should not be done by, by these types of uh, employees. And so uh, we talked about dangerous equipment or the dangerous job, but what about hours worked for a 14, 15-year-old versus a 16 or 17-year-old versus right. 18 Yeah. So you know, under the FLSA, interestingly enough, uh, there are no restrictions on hours for those 16 and 17-year-olds. Uh, the restrictions are really only uh, for 14 and 15-year-olds. Again, caveat, look to your state law, of course. Uh, but, you know, for, you know, 14 and 15 year olds, again, you know, the, the hours that they can work uh, depend on whether school is in session or not, or whether, you know, that the work is performed, for instance, the day before they're going to school or, or not. Uh, and so I, I believe on a weekday, uh, you know, 14 and 50 year olds, uh, or, or on a school day rather, they can't work more than three hours. Uh, but now that we're, you know, it, school's almost out, you know, once we get into, uh, you know, the summer, you know, they can work up to eight hours a day and up to, you know, 40 hours a week when school is not in session. So uh, there is a big difference once school lets out. Uh, 
But, you know, one thing I would note is you should probably ask your minors, these 14 and 15 year olds, find out if they're in summer school. Uh, that can impact this. If they are in mm -hmm. summer school, then we're talking about those uh, school in session uh, restrictions and uh, they don't quite have the, uh, the same flexibility. Uh, another issue that I see come up and that I've uh, you know, had clients get dinged on with the DOL is that even if you're not scheduling these 14 and 15 year olds for you know, an, uh, an unreasonable amount of time, right? We all have you know, employees call out sick, you know, we're in the you know, midst of uh, you know, the pandemic or, or maybe not, but there, there are people you know, who are gonna be sick and calling out. You, you need to understand that if you have a minor filling in for other employees, that's that goes to those hours. And so whoever is managing uh, the scheduling uh, needs to have this understanding of, you know, what restrictions, how what's the maximum amount of hours that these 14, 15 year olds can work. Uh, because even if you schedule them correctly, if they, you know, take a shift from uh, from a colleague, you know, that could put them over the 40 hours, you know, and, and then you're running into a violation. I think maybe the, thing, the the one point I'd want to maybe guide, uh, especially small businesses, maybe not so much medium-sized. Uh, uh, if you're a business that regularly hires, you're in a, you're in a, a service business, a, a golf course, restaurant, you're a, you're in a you know a, an amusement park. Uh, uh, so you always have this big influx of seasonal employees. Uh, most of those folks probably know the laws. They know what they can, what they can't do, how to how to work with all that. Um, I think to me, to me, the big risk here is for the small business who is not uh, knowledgeable in all the laws around this topic, and you are bringing one employee or two employees uh, here or there as that as that, uh, that 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 seasonal help. That the, these are the people that I think especially pay attention. Look at your local and your state laws, not just the federal laws, because. Um, the 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 younger generation coming in coming into the workforce is more aware of their legal protections than uh, said before than, than any any generation before uh and if they feel slighted they're going to be they're also much more likely to report than any generation before whether they feel sexually harassed or discriminated against or that uh it's unfair that you're making them work x number of hours or on uh, such and such machines. Uh, any any other guidance you want to give around these age breaks, 14, 15 versus 16, 17 year olds, before we move on to our next topic of uh, uh, benefits? Yeah, yeah, and I, I think without going into it, I, I would just say that you know look to your state law for other things like meal breaks and rest periods. Uh, you know those aren't governed by federal law necessarily, but uh, you know, most state laws have requirements for adult employees for rest periods. And I think at least half the states uh, have something on the books for rest periods for, for minors. Uh, so, so that's something to understand. Uh, you know, one other issue is, you know, work permits. You know, some states uh, require employees of certain ages uh, to have work permits. Uh, it might depend on what time of year they're working. Uh, so again, th these are certain things that, you know, most of the time, you know, look, your state labor department should have this information, but if not, you know, 
reach out to a shore, you know, they, they, they can guide you on these because uh, you, you want to make sure that, that you're following the law, especially when it comes to minors uh, and, and not being, you know, uh, overly uh, demanding of them or, you know, uh, you know, and then one, one other issue I would say is that uh, be careful on entering into agreements with minors like an employment contract, an arbitration agreement, uh, even a background check. Minors under 18 cannot consent to these types of things under the law. Uh, you very well might need a parent to, for instance, consent to a background check. So uh, just be careful on, on some of those issues as well. Yeah, very good. Okay, let's move on to uh, uh, health benefits. Um, I think most people understand uh, the legal requirement. So, so maybe just at, at a first, at, at a high level, first, forget seasonal. When do you? When do you? Are you? Are you obligated to provide health benefits? When are you not? So, uh, Affordable Care Act uh, uh, says more than 25 or more employees, you have to uh, provide health care. Um, uh, but there are some, still some rules around part-time versus full-time and the, uh, the, the line is 30 hours a week. There are rules for that. Can you just speak to, you know, 60 seconds, Brian, of what, forget seasonal, when are you required to uh, supply benefits? Because I think going back to where we started, you have to treat all employees the same because there's not a legal definition of seasonal. Am I, am, am I setting that up correctly? Right. Yeah, I think so. And so, right, we're we're all all right. We're always looking at whether you know a, a company has uh, you know the sufficient number of you know full time employees or full time equivalents. Um, you know to you know hit you know certain certain mandates, uh, and we're looking at how to measure those, whether it's you know the monthly or look back uh, period. So you know those those are certainly things that. Uh, you know, companies should be looking at uh, you know, all the time, and and really, um, you know, one one of the common questions I had from employers in this regard is, you know, can I treat you know different employees differently? Can I offer uh, you know health health benefits to you know some subset of workers, but not to others, right? Whether it's you know, say I want to offer it to management, but not you know the the laborers. Uh, and, you know, there's, you know, unfortunately, there's no easy answer to, to many of these questions. You know, the Affordable Care Act, it, you know, is a bit complicated. Uh, but, you know, one of the things certainly in offering benefits maybe to different types of employees is, you know, avoiding any, you know, discrimination issues, avoiding any, you know, disparate impact, right? If we're going to provide benefits to our managers, uh, but not to our laborers, you know, are, are, you know, are our, our uh, managers predominantly, you know, one, you know, one race and our laborers predominantly, you know, certain certain other races that, you know, while we don't have the intent of discriminating that the result is that, you know, we're giving benefits essentially on, you know, race race lines. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, there, there's there's just so many considerations that go into it. But, um you know, I guess working this back toward the seasonal aspect, um, you know, right, there's generally not a requirement, and I say generally, <laughs> not a requirement to provide health insurance uh, to seasonal employees. Uh, 
but we need to keep in mind, uh, you know, in measuring the full-time equivalents for the ACA's requirements, you know, that can actually impact this analysis. And depending on how a company looks at it, you know, could result in in the company having to uh, provide coverage. Um, So for instance, right, if if the company uses um, the the monthly measurement of full times, uh, you know, right, you're looking at, for instance, the, I believe you're looking at the past month to see uh, workers who worked at least, um, you know, 30 hours uh, a week. And, you know, or, right, well, we want to see workers who worked 30 hours a week. And so we're looking at who worked over 130 hours or so that prior month. If you're doing this monthly measurement, that could result in, you know, the next month having to provide coverage to certain uh, seasonal employees who may have hit that threshold. Uh, and, and that's something to be aware of because many companies just assume, right, no matter what, there, there's no requirement to provide these seasonal workers coverage. Uh, that said, if companies use the alternative look back method, uh, which you're taking some defined period, looking back at that, uh, looking at an average uh, to see whether the employees worked, uh, you know, at least 30 hours uh, a week. You know, in that method, you're likely not going to be uh, tr- triggering coverage uh, requirement for any seasonal workers because, you know, depending on that that sample size, that that look back period, you know, those seasonal workers wouldn't have, you know, met the the hours threshold. Uh, so, Brian, yep. Brian, would I be saying it right? To then, okay, local and state uh, governments. Uh, can have whatever laws they want that are uh, uh, above and beyond. But uh, I think I said 25 employees, it's 50 employees for the Affordable Care Act. Uh, but the, the real, from a federal perspective, the governing rules here are really around ACA, Affordable Care Act, right? And which, which method you're using to determine and calculate uh, benefit eligibility or benefit requirement, I should say. Uh, and it really kind of sort of has nothing to do with seasonal. It's all about the model you're using to calculate uh, part-time versus full-time by the rules of the ACA. Is, is that right? Yeah, I think that sums it up perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to maybe to put a bow on this one, then it's uh, you cannot think as an employer, you cannot treat quote-unquote seasonal employees different than other employees when it comes to providing benefits, you are obligated under the law, the law being the Affordable Care Act, the ACA, to provide your employees with benefits or not provide them with benefits based on those requirements, not whether they are in fact seasonal. Right? Exactly. Yes. Okay. Let's let's talk about then, uh, this may be I don't know that people get in such trouble around minimum wage as maybe they used to, but I sure think people get in a lot of trouble around overtime. Um, and it's for the same reasons we've been discussing, right? You don't get to say, hey, seasonal help, uh, you know, we're, we're a little bit lumpy, so you didn't work that many hours for last week. You worked a bunch more this week. It was just 80 hours. It was under 80 hours for the for the two-week period, so no overtime. But uh, that's not how the law works, right? So, so in the eyes of the law, what what must employers do when it comes to paying overtime? And and, and I think it's maybe more obvious how to handle minimum wage. 
Right. So, right. Overtime, right. We're, we're tracking their number of hours. And if they hit over 40 in a week, uh, that then that triggers, you know, time and a half. And, and like you mentioned, you know, many employers uh, have some misconception that, you know, they can use flex time that, you know, all right, you hit 50 hours this week. So you'll work 30 next week. No overtime. Uh, you know that that's not how it's done. The, the overtime measurement is done, you know, on a week by week basis. Uh, you know, so I mean, you know, for instance, you could have an employee who, you know, is scheduled to work 40 hours a week, and they work, you know, 10 hours on Monday. So you might have them work, you know, six hours on Tuesday. You can flex within the week, uh, and that can be done for seasonal workers, just like you know, full time workers. Uh, where you can flex within that week, you know, to change your schedule to, you know, ensure they stay under 40, uh, but not not between weeks. Uh, and I think, you know, one one area that I, I see a lot of employers trying to get creative with in this area with seasonal workers is classifying them as independent contractors. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, thinking that, well, they're an independent contractor. That means I can pay them however I want. There's no overtime. Uh, and, you know, many employers aren't necessarily understanding there's a test, right? There's a test to see whether the employee is an independent contractor or an employee. Uh, and again, we're talking about, you know, most of the time there's going to be a state specific test uh, that, that your state uses, but uh, there are a few general concepts around, you know, independent contractors and, you know, avoiding this, this, oh, these overtime requirements. Uh, you know, we're really talking about people who the company does not control that, right? You're giving, uh, you're telling, you know, an, a, an individual, this is what I want done. This is what we need done. And then that individual controls, you know, the process and, and how it gets done. Uh, they're often working, you know, with their own equipment. Uh, there's some opportunity for for loss, uh, for profit or loss for the independent contractor. They're they're not just getting a salary regardless uh, of what they do. So uh, I, I would suggest that you know if you're considering labeling some of your seasonal workers independent contractors, you know, be very careful about that. Uh, you know, th there are some pretty, uh, you know, uh, penal consequences uh, there, you know, whether it's going to be, as we're talking about now, unpaid overtime because you've paid them in a way that doesn't comply with the FLSA uh, or your state equivalent. Uh, but there's also, you know, unemployment insurance contributions, uh, workers comp, uh, you know, so there there are other issues that, you know, th that will stem from a misclassification uh, when, you know, the company is just thinking, you know, how can we lower our, you know, overtime hit, you know, with these seasonal workers. Uh, right. So, and again, and I understand, you know, one thing that clients come to me all the time right now, even in this, you know, market where, you know, in this market right now is I can't get enough employees. And so I have to schedule the employees I have for, you know, 50, 60 hours and, you know, they're, they're, you know, I understand that employers are looking for creative ways to reduce those labor costs. Uh, right. But, you know, you, obviously hiring more employees and keeping them all below 40 is one way to do that. You know, that's simply not possible all the time, but be very careful if you're then, you know, looking to, you know, label them as independent contractors to avoid that, that overtime requirement. 
and Brian, that over time, this is an area where we see a lot of uh, movement legislatively with the states, right? So California and several other states have their own overtime laws that layer on top of FLSA at the federal level. So, uh, you know, in, in, in your example, you know, you only worked uh, two hours on Monday. Uh, so uh, maybe I'll stack them up with a bunch of extra hours on, on, on Tuesday, but I'll keep them under my 40 for the week. Make sure you're in, in alignment with local uh, in state law uh, as you make those decisions as well. Right. In California, that might not do the trick when, when overtime can be triggered, uh, I think, by working over eight hours in a day. So, yeah, right. certainly. That's right. Good, yeah. That's right. It, and uh, for an employer who might be thinking, you know what, I'll, I'll risk it. Um, if it results... And, and, you know, you, you might not ever get caught, right? But um, if if it does, uh, you have a situation, especially with a seasonal worker who feels slighted or wronged and they report you, and there is a state or federal DOL audit, uh, wage and hour audit, uh, they're not going to audit whether you paid that employee fairly. They're going to look at all of your records going back probably years and however much they determine you didn't pay people properly, you're going to retroactively pay all of it and some fines. Am I, am I saying that right, Brian? Yeah. Yeah. So, right. Often these misclassifications go go beyond that one you know, employee. I, I can tell you, you know, that's the most disastrous part about this, that, right, you bring in 10 seasonal workers, you've misclassified all of them. You know, one of them makes a complaint to the DOL they're not just looking at that one they're looking at all of those and and they're going to look at the rest of your workforce too uh so yeah that that that's certainly an issue uh when you have you know multiple people in, in the same classification and, and and i think i'm an entrepreneur i grew up in around businesses and partners in businesses most entrepreneurs are not out there trying to screw their employees over right i mean people try to do the right thing but if you're an expert in landscaping or home remodeling or architecture, you're not an expert in tax law and HR law, right? And so uh, people make mistakes unwittingly in, in, in it's, it's the, the, the really expensive thing that can happen here is th that auditor's probably not gonna, it's not worth their time, it sounds terrible to say it that way, it's not cost effective of their time. That's a better way to say it for an auditor to come in and say, oh, John Doe complained about this. I'm going to examine John Doe's records and nothing else. Once they've got your books, they've got your books, right? Yeah. And, it, and that's where it starts getting real expensive accidentally for the employer who didn't make any mistake on, who, who didn't do any of this maliciously, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, let's tackle our last one here. Looking at the clock, uh, uh, Brian, let's talk about time off requests and, and how does, how does, We've already established there's not a legal classification called uh, seasonal employee. Um, so therefore, how should employers be thinking about leave requests? Sure. So, you know, typically, you know, outside of, you know, the growing patchwork of, you know, paid sick leave and safe time laws, you know, at the local and state level, uh, you know, generally a company's PTO policies are up to them. You put them in writing, that's typically the one thing we recommend, uh, and apply them consistently. But 
uh, you know, it is entirely uh, okay to have, you know, more stringent PTO policies for, you know, seasonal workers than you have for the rest of your workforce. We just want those to be communicated at, at the outset, right? You know, if you have someone coming on for, you know, two or three months, understandably, we're not giving them, you know, five days off during that time. Uh, you know, so it's okay to have, you know, your own PTO policies, you know, limit the time off available. Uh, but like I mentioned, there are paid sick time laws at the local and state level for many employers to consider. Uh, you know, these most of these laws apply equally to seasonal workers as they do to year-round workers. However, what often is the case is that they have waiting periods. Uh, so, you know, so many of these laws have, you know, 60 or 90 days or even 120 days before an employee can use the PTO they've accrued. So even though seasonal workers may accrue this PTO, be aware that you still might not need to give them the time off. Uh, of course, if you have the same seasonal workers coming back, you know, summer after summer, check your local laws to how that will impact because if they accrued some time off the previous summer but couldn't use it because they they hadn't been uh you know worked past that waiting period you know check your local law because the following summer that might still be in their bank and they might be able to use it then uh so you know th those are you know certain uh you know things to be aware of uh but you know otherwise Again, you know, generally we want to onboard seasonal workers the same way we onboard, you know, our regular workers. We want to give them our policies. We want to, you know, ensure they they know what the expectations are, both with respect to you know time off and, and other policies. Um, and just from an employee relations uh, aspect and setting the company culture, right? We don't want to bring you know this whole workforce in, you know, for the summer season uh, that you know either. Uh, is inconsistent with what the company's done, you know, with, with all their, you know, uh, full-time workers. Uh, you know, you want to make sure that they understand the company culture. They understand what's expected of them. Uh, so, you know, again, I, I think the one law we can pretty safely say does not apply to seasonal workers in this context is the FMLA. And that's mainly because to be an eligible employee under the FMLA, you need to work 12 months or uh, 1200 and 1250 hours. So, you know, seasonal workers won't hit that, but certainly employers need to be aware of their uh, their local laws uh, on paid sick time. Brian, I, I, think, uh, I think you brought it home perfectly. So uh, our guidance to employers uh, is many of you have and utilize seasonal employees uh they just uh, whether it's a a new available uh labor pool for you or the nature of your business because you're in a seasonal industry um so so many of us deal with this uh, uh, uh the the piece of guidance would be know your laws we are you know brian has shared here some of the federal requirements a lot of around flsa but the, increasingly, uh, uh, like the way you described it, there's a patchwork of, of local and state laws uh, uh, that is ever evolving to, to be aware of as well. And, and I think just the biggest, most practical advice we could give is there's no such thing as a seasonal employees in, in, in the eyes of the law. There are just laws. So if it's the Affordable Care Act, uh, 
there aren't seasonal employees. There are just employees, and you have to apply your test to see uh, the, whatever methodology you're using to determine full-time equivalency, whether they whether you must uh, provide benefits or not. Uh, you simply have to follow the Fair Labor Standards Act for uh, paying overtime. Uh, you don't get to pay the person uh, in Venmo without uh, on your phone uh, just because they're you know a, a, a kid in your eyes. Uh, uh, you still have to pull payroll taxes out of that compensation for them, and you have to pay the employer taxes and get a 9-9 and, and uh, file your quarterly tax returns. So you have to treat seasonal employees within the eyes of the law, just like you would any other employee. So uh, with that, uh, you know, this is what Assure is, is here for. So uh, increasingly, this patchwork of laws is, is harder and harder to get your head around. Uh, and most small business owners are experts in their industry. They're not experts at HR. And so uh, uh, the problem is, from a cash flow perspective, hiring a Society of Human Resource Management, a SHRM certified HR professional, could easily cost you at least 70, 80, 90, 100,000 or more uh, to hire a full time staff member. So for pennies on the dollar, Sure offers different programs that are flexible to meet your needs, whether it's uh, uh, writing handbooks and providing sexual harassment training, or we can be actually become your entire HR department where your employees literally call us and we are your fractional HR department virtually uh, and, and at a fraction of the cost that we would take to, to build that in-house. So if there's any way we can help, we'd love to. Let us know. Maybe, Brian, can you just uh, spend 30 seconds telling everybody about who Jackson Lewis is and how you guys help clients? Sure. So Jackson Lewis, we're a uh, labor and employment defense firm uh, with a nationwide footprint with over uh, you know, 60 offices throughout the U.S. Uh, we provide, like myself, often uh, you know, litigation uh, defense uh, against all sorts of employment claims, uh, but also you know, ranges from advice to counsel and counsel to all, all sorts of uh, legal needs that touch on the employer-employee relationship. Brian, I always enjoy talking to you. I learn something every time. Uh, thanks to everyone for joining us. If there's any way we can help uh, help our uh, anyone in our family of 80,000 plus growing small and mid-sized companies with payroll or human resources, by all means, let us know. And until next week, thank you for your time. Thanks, Brian. Thank you.